came to within a whisker of being able to fulfill his desire to kill David. Well, uh, Saul is Israel's king, and he sits upon the throne. However, many years earlier, at, at this point in our story, many years earlier, the prophet Samuel had told him that the Lord had rejected him as king in order to give the kingdom to one of his neighbors, to one better than him. Saul knows, and we know, that that neighbor is David, who was anointed also a few years ago by this stage in the narrative. David was anointed by Samuel the prophet many years ago as well. And uh, last week, if you were with us last week, you remember how we saw Saul's forces, 3,000 especially chosen young soldiers, how Saul's specially chosen forces were about to close in and finally capture David and his 600 men. But just at the last moment, at the 59th second of the 11th hour, a messenger came to Saul and said, Quick, the Philistines are invading the land. And, and so Saul had, had to break away his attack and go and answer the Philistinian threat. And um, last week, you, you may remember if you were here, last week we talked about how this was a miracle of coincidence and how Saul was a slave to circumstances. And we also talked about how, we, we talked about this last week, how if you are a servant of the Lord, if you are a servant of the Lord who reigns over all things, including our circumstances, if you are a servant of the Lord, then you are not a slave to circumstances. Indeed, we can be sure that ultimately, circumstances will serve us as we serve the Lord. Well, this week we uh, read about Saul renewing the hunt. Um, presumably he's dealt with the Philistines. The narrator's not remotely interested in that. We don't learn anything about what happened with the Philistines, but presumably this distraction is dealt with, and once again Saul sets off in pursuit of David, hunting him down to the desert of En Gedi. Now, uh, En Gedi is an oasis. It's very close to the Dead Sea, near the rock of the mountain goats. And En Gedi is uh, in the deep south of Israelite territory near the Dead Sea, a vast, uh, coming out of, or out of that place, um, beyond it there's a vast expanse, a, a vast desert of badlands and gullies and ravines and canyons and caves, thousands of caves. And it's the kind of place, um, very, 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 very little uh, vegetation, no trees, it's the kind of place where you get out of the midday sun. And so in our narrative, in our story this morning, we read about Another coincidence, Saul goes into a cave to relieve himself and it just so happens that it is exactly the same cave as David and his men were hiding in. Now, whether it was some of David's men or all of them, we don't know. But Saul, he doesn't see them. Of course, he couldn't see them. They're deep in the cave, but, but they can see him. He's beautifully backlit. And... It's just a little bit funny to imagine Saul hoisting up his tunic or, or squatting, sitting on a different kind of throne in, in front of an audience of, say, 600 men without even knowing it. 
In fact, Saul's going to feel relieved twice by the end of this story. <laughs> But it's this base humiliation, to be sure, and one made comic by the fact of this tragic figure of Saul. He's unaware of what's happening. And once again, we see Saul's tragic cack-handedness. Saul can't find David even in the presence of David. We can presume, I think, that David and his men were greatly surprised to see Saul. Presumably they were in there to sleep, to take a nap, to hide from the midday sun, a siesta. Perhaps they didn't even realize that Saul was in the vicinity. And so for them on that day, it was an astonishing coincidence. And David's men eagerly interpret this coincidence for David. They offer him the interpretation, verse 4. The men said, ha, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Now, I'm reasonably sure that God did not say what they said he said to David. I'm reasonably sure God never said that. I think it's wishful thinking, or at least a wishful combination of God's promise to David that he would surely be king, combined with their own ideas of what it means to be king. And Jesus, as you may know, regularly had to put up with men telling him what it meant as far as they were concerned that he was the Messiah. But what these men, in effect, are saying to David is, is kind of what I said to you last week if, if you were here. Hey, this is a miracle of coincidence. A, a miracle of coincidence is a highly unlikely, perhaps astronomically unlikely coincidence such that you can see God at work in terms of his blessing on you or the advance of his purpose in or through your life. And so their counsel, their advice to David is this. Hey, David, take advantage of this miracle of coincidence. This is a miracle from God in accord with his word. And um, David does take advantage. David does take advantage of this circumstance, but, but not in the way his men were anticipating. And uh, our translation tells us that David snuck up and he cut the corner off uh, Saul's robe. And, and the Hebrew word means edge or, or wing. What David has done is he's cut off a portion of the hem of Saul's robe. Um, now, as you may know, robes were tremendously important to the Hebrews. A person's robe, especially if they were poor, could be the most expensive thing they owned. And it was symbolic of a person's status and authority. Jacob, as you may remember, back in Genesis, Jacob put the cat amongst the pigeons by giving his second youngest son a special robe, a robe that showed that he was more special than his brothers. And there were lots of problems that arose from that. But something that we might not know is that the Israelites understood that the hem of the robe was especially important in conveying a person's status and authority. Um, for Jesus, there, there was once this day when Jesus was walking through a marketplace. It was densely packed and crowds of people were crushing in on him and he's being touched by everyone on all sides. Everybody wanted a piece of Jesus for this or for that. And there was a woman there, a woman who had been sick for 12 years 
with a very humiliating medical condition, one that made her a social outcast. And, and she thought to herself, if I can just touch the wing of his robe, if I can just touch the hem of his robe, I will be healed. And she was. And when the prophet Isaiah saw the Lord in the temple, what he tells us he saw is that the hems of his robe filled the temple. That's a symbol of, his, of, of God's status and authority as king of kings. The hems of his robe filled the temple. Well, what David has done is cut off the hem, the wing of Saul's robe. And actually, inadvertently, this just happens to be this incredible act of disloyalty. It's an enacted parable. What, what David has done is, is in, as an enacted parable, he's, he's t- transferred the authority of Saul to himself. And that's not what David meant. What he meant was for this piece of fabric to be testimony to the fact that he could have killed Saul, but he didn't. What he's done is an enacted parable, the transfer of the kingdom from Saul to himself. That's why he was so severely conscience-stricken. As soon as he'd done it, he thought, oh no, what have I done? You see, years earlier, on the very day that the prophet Samuel told Saul that the Lord had rejected him as king, Saul tore off the hem of Samuel's robe. And um, you can find the event in chapter 15, verse 27. I'm going to read it, but if you want to look as well, it's on page 226, just a few chapters before. Chapter 15, verse 27. And, And what we find read there is, what we find written there is, as Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught, home, caught hold of the hem of Samuel's robe, and it tore. Now, what Saul was simply trying to do was just prevent Samuel from leaving. Saul wanted to negotiate. He wanted to get Samuel to get God to change his mind. But, but Samuel saw in Saul's action an unintended, yet accurate, enacted parable. Verse 28, Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. So that's what David has done. Um, he meant it as testimony to the fact that he could have killed Saul but didn't, but what he's done is an enacted parable, the transfer of authority from Saul to David. And that's why he's conscious stricken. But that's what David's done. It's what David didn't do that really counts this morning. So let's take a look at what David didn't do, which was, of course, kill Saul. That's what's really important. And with respect to not killing Saul the man who'd been repeatedly trying to kill him for years, David offers his men a short explanation and then an expanded explanation to Saul himself. And as you may have read three times or heard three times, um, David's explanation is that Saul is the Lord's anointed and therefore his king and master. But that's confusing to me. And it might be confusing to you too. 
because actually we know that Saul is not the Lord's anointed. He's not the Messiah. He's a very naughty boy. And we expect David to know this too. We all know actually that David is the Lord's anointed and Saul is a fly in the ointment. We all know that the Spirit of the Lord has departed from Saul and that God has rejected Saul as king. We know that David has left Saul's service as a matter of life and death and, and so he's no longer his servant. And we all, we all also know that really basically as a matter of justice David could kill Saul and legitimately plead self-defense. So, so why does David continue to honor Saul with both this title and this authority and this respect? Why doesn't he just rid himself of his enemy once and for all and in doing so to take hold of all that God has promised him and that we know is God's purpose for his life? Well, I think a lot of things are going on here. Um, I think this passage is intended to wow us with David's faith. And we ought to be wowed. David here is a man of extraordinary faith. Um, and I think really there are lots of things that need to be teased apart in order for us to see the depth of David's faith. In trying to do that, I'm going to make five points. Five points. And my first point Continuing the theme that the servant of the Lord is not a slave to circumstances, my first point is that here we see David's understanding of that deeply and intuitively. He knows he's a servant of the Lord and therefore not a slave to circumstances. Just because circumstances seem to dictate a certain course of action doesn't mean that David has to follow that course of action as though a slave to circumstances. It is impossible for a servant of the Lord ever to say, I had no choice. Now, as Christians, we often look to circumstances to open and shut doors as indicative of God's will. And there is much truth in that. Um, Jesus is the Lord of doors. Um, That which he opens cannot be closed, and that which he closes cannot be opened. So an open door with respect to Christ's work may often be indicating his will. Paul, uh, at the end of his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul says to the Corinthians in chapter 16, he says, I'm going to stay on here in Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me. However, this same Paul begins his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 2, verses 12 and following, with, Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. In other words, Paul respects doors without worshipping them. Paul is led by the Spirit rather than driven by circumstances. 
And that's what we see here this morning for David. And Saul is the contrast. Saul runs to and fro, driven by circumstances. David is led by the Spirit. And David shows us that he has that extraordinary insight. I mean, the temptation must have been acute. You know, in the back of the mind, it must have been going for David. This is truly an extraordinary coincidence. It is a chance event unlikely to ever present itself again, an opportunity to be rid once and for all of that threat of Saul. But David had no peace of mind in the idea of killing Saul. And knowing that he wasn't a slave to circumstances gave David the freedom to reject a golden opportunity. Now, you're either a slave to circumstances or a servant of the Lord, but you can't be both. If you are a servant of the Lord then circumstances ultimately will serve you as you serve the Lord of circumstances. And even the worst of circumstances, even the worst of circumstances can be redeemed by our Lord. Uh, that's, that's my first point. David, servant of the Lord, not slave to circumstances. My, my second point is that David doesn't grasp, and there are times in life when it is really important for the servant of the Lord to not grasp for himself or herself, even when what you want to grasp is in line with the promises of God or the purposes of God or both. As you may know, there was a tree in the Garden of Eden. Actually, as you may know, there were lots of trees in the Garden of Eden. And one of those trees was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That tree offered the opportunity of being able to tell the difference between right and wrong, good and bad, good and evil. In actual fact, that tree offered them nothing that God hadn't already promised them. You see, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God and in the likeness of God, commissioned to be the Lord's representatives to the rest of creation. Of course God was going to teach them the difference between good and bad, the difference between right and wrong, how to be like God in all of their affairs and dealings with the rest of creation. Of course God was going to give them the knowledge of good and evil. God had promised that implicitly in order that they might be his representatives. But not from a tree. No, it was to come from his mouth, the word of God. What the tree then, what was the tree doing there at all? Well, what the tree then offered them was the opportunity for them to grasp for themselves, to learn autonomously, independently of God. The tree offered Adam and Eve the possibility of a life lived without God but lived under the sure promise that that would end in death. And what did they do? They grasped. And we as a race, we've had a severe problem with grasping ever since. Nine times out of ten, that's precisely what we do. We just grasp. We can do something, so we do do something without stopping to think and pray. 
Well, actually, it's such an overwhelmingly common mistake to make. It's extraordinary that David doesn't make that mistake on that day. Sometimes there are times when we just simply must not grasp. Even when the fruit that we're reaching for is in line with the promises of God and the circumstances seem just right, even this is, in fact, a golden opportunity. Um, I'd I'd been a Christian for about three years uh, when I became aware of the fact that I had in my heart a deep, deep desire to, to preach. Um, fortunately, by God's grace, I also instinctively knew that it was essential that I did not grasp for that great privilege. And, and therefore, I knew in my heart that it was essential that I told no one that I wanted to preach. And I didn't. I, I just reasoned, and I reasoned accurately, that if the desire in my heart to preach was of the Lord, he would open the right doors at the right time. And I had to wait a couple of years, but eventually a few invitations came, and I did get an opportunity to preach, and eventually, actually, I got a job where I, I got to preach quite regularly. That's a joke, by the way. And, and just in case you haven't also got the point, uh, this is uh, supposed to be a positive example of me not grasping, of me getting it right. So let's balance that with a negative example. Well, in, uh, and there are many. Um, when I wrote this sermon, the one that came to mind was that in 2010, I uh, signed up to uh, eHarmony because I had this deep, deep desire in my heart to find a wife. I knew instinctively, actually I knew instinctively that online dating wasn't right for me. It wasn't what God wanted for me. But I rationalized my way into it. I'm free as a Christian to do this. And after all, I need all the help that I can get. And God uses matchmakers in the Bible. And why shouldn't I? But it was a mistake. And I got hurt along the way. And I hurt others along the way for two years. Later... Of course, when when Joe came along, uh, it was not through an online matchmaking agency, but rather through a mutual friend. Now, please don't hear me criticizing eHarmony or condemning online introduction agencies. If you're a single Christian and God is calling you to get off your bottom and join eHarmony, then please do so. But it wasn't for me. For me, eHarmony was grasping and I got it wrong. Sometimes, as is the case here for David, only you will know that such and such is the wrong thing for you. And even though it seems in line with the promises of God, in line with his work, in line with his work, and everyone else around you is saying, take, eat, this is a golden opportunity, and all the circumstances are lining up. On that day, do not grasp. Keep it surrendered and trust God. David demonstrates a profoundly mature faith in his ability to discern when not to grasp. And and that's my second point. And Saul again is the contrast. Saul destroys his own life and hurts many, many people around him through his inability to let go. 
David knows when not to grasp. Very, very deep faith. My third point uh, is this. David's decision to not kill Saul is a decision to forgive Saul for his offenses against him. Forgiveness is found uh, in verses 11 and 12. In verse 11, David says, I have not wronged you, Saul, but you are hunting me down to take my life. And what David is doing is he's detailing precisely what he is forgiving Saul for. Saul is hunting David down in order to kill him. And this mindless vendetta, this mindless vendetta has destroyed David's ability to live any kind of normal life. It's a big thing that's happening to David. Living in caves for a decade. Verse 12, may the Lord judge between you and me. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is laying down our legal right to repayment in kind. David transfers in this decision of his will, he transfers his legal right to repayment in kind into God's hands. He has forgiven Saul. And David, as a man of faith, knows that that is essential. God forgive. Moments earlier, Saul was in danger from David and safe from God. Now Saul is safe from David and in danger from God. Verse 12 again. May the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. David forgives Saul. And my fourth point follows directly from my third. In forgiving Saul, David actually intuitively recognizes that the person of faith cannot defend their own cause. There's no self-defense if you're a Christian. This is because the person of faith trusts God to defend their cause. Jesus was silent in front of his accusers. He judged those who judged him. He gave explanations to those who sought explanations. When he was questioned, he questioned back. But he was silent before his accusers. He did not defend his own cause, even when that meant crucifixion. Why is this critically important? Well, this is critically important because actually there's no such thing as self-defense. The best form of attack is self-defense. Um, in the United States of America, as you may well know, people really love guns, and there's a very high incidence of gun ownership. And the most common reason cited in North America for owning a handgun is self-defense. People buy handguns for self-defense. I don't see how that works. It's very difficult. If you're going to use a handgun to defend yourself, you're going to have to line up the handgun with the bullet coming towards you. Boom, boom, boom. That must be very difficult to do, seeing as you can't see bullets. Because you can't use a handgun to defend yourself. All you can use a handgun to do is to attack the person attacking you. It's not the same thing. A handgun is for killing a person before they kill you, and that's not sent to self-defense. That's just killing someone. 
in exactly the same way. I am so slow to learn this in my own life because my instinct to self-defense is so nicely honed. Whenever I am accused of something, you know, in terms of my words or my actions or my decisions, I almost always defend my words or my actions. Self-defense, which so very often is actually, (laughs) take that. My self-defense is actually just simply attacking back. And it's always a costly mistake. I always pay for it. Because it's ungodly. I ought to pay for it. Am I on? David knows not to defend his own cause. Trust in the Lord Jesus to defend your cause as you defend his cause. David gets this, verses uh, 12 and 13. Saul, may the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you, as the old saying goes. From evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Um, Our culture refuses to believe that a person is their actions. In our culture, you might notice that we endlessly disconnect the two things. Oh, oh! even though what she did was really mean, she's basically a, lovey, a, loving, a, lovely, a, a loving person. Oh, he's, he's, he's basically good, even though he lied. No, 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 no. No, we are, we are what we do. If we do evil things, then we are evil, irrespective of our intentions. Evil is as evil does. We are saved by grace alone. Justified by faith alone. Judged by works alone. We are what we do. David gets that. If he had killed Saul on that day, it would have been a disaster for his messianic brand identity. People thereafter would have understood that it was okay for a Messiah to kill in order to defend their own cause. And ultimately, that would have opened the door to anything and everything. Imagine how different this world would be today if every single human being understood, as David did 3,000 years ago, that actually God is entirely capable of getting rid of people without our assistance. Imagine how different our world would be if everyone understood that. That's my fourth point. David trusts God to defend his cause. And so, logically, my fifth point, flowing on from that, rather than repaying evil with evil, David has repaid evil with good. He is merciful to Saul. That's my fifth point. David refuses to repay evil with evil, but rather he repays evil with good. He is merciful. Well, um, this passage has a lot more to say, but I've said enough for today. David is encouraged by his friends to seize the day and grasp the crown 
that we all know legitimately belongs to him, but he doesn't. He demonstrates extraordinary faith. Firstly, he knows that he is not a slave to circumstances, but rather he is a servant of the Lord. Secondly, David knows that there may be a time to take hold, but there is also a day when it's really important not to grasp. And he understands that that day is that day for him, when it is essential not to grasp. Thirdly, David knows that he must forgive, that he must trust God to defend his cause, and that he must repay evil, not with evil, but with good. And these things make David, not Saul, fit for leadership. And the fact that in our passage today, that testimony that David is fit for leadership, that testimony comes from the mouth of Saul, makes that testimony compelling. David knows all these things. David is a man of great faith because he's been born of the Spirit of God. Apart from the presence of Jesus in his life, in the power of the Holy Spirit, David could not possibly have had the spiritual faith or the ethical discernment that we see here. And so what I'm saying is that I think this passage is supposed to, we are supposed to go, wow, at David's faith. But this is not an advertising blurb for David. But rather it is for where this wisdom comes from. The source. The wisdom of walking with the Lord. The Lord who opens our eyes, speaks into our ears, helps us to understand his word and to know when and how to apply it. And so this passage and Myself also this morning commends to us, not David, but Jesus, um, who is the Lord of circumstances, the Lord of doors, uh, and who promises to be with us and to guide us, even through the valley of the shadow of death. And so to Jesus belongs all glory and honor, power and praise forever and ever. Amen.